Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Simon Pound and Penny Ashton with me. Now, the State Highway, sorry, uh, yes, uh, SH1 Southern Motorway, that crash that was blocking the left uh, northbound lane between Ramanama and Jury has now been cleared. Let's go to this first. Polls out. National Enact could govern alone. Green slump. National Enact. They could form a government under the latest One News Counter political poll with Christopher Luxon's personal popularity uh, slightly bouncing back. So, National gains three points in the poll to 37%. Labour down one to 35%. Act, they're steady at 11 And Green, they're down to 7%. They're down four. New Zealand First, 3%. Uh, te Pāti Māori, they're down one to two. So the results would mean 47 seats for National and 15 for ACT, giving them one more than the 61-seat threshold required to hold half of Parliament. So let's do a little bit of analysis on this with Associate Professor Grant Duncan from uh, the U- Massey University. Uh, kia ora, Grant. Kia ora, Wallace. So the polling started three days after the budget, yet no budget boost for Labour here, Duncan? Uh, apparently not. I mean, we don't ever need to read too much into a single poll yeah. because of the uh, error variance uh, in these polls. You know, there was a, a reported uh, margin of error of plus or minus three percentage points. Just qualifications like that are important, yeah. I think. Um, and so it does seem more or less within those margins of errors that, you know, we're still seeing a trend where Labour and National are more or less level pegging. I wouldn't necessarily say that we can see a trend yet Okay. towards the, the right-wing coalition. We'll have to wait for some more polls to come out. Yes, indeed. It is just one poll. Looking at the numbers of the Greens down four, what, what, what do you think is behind this? The Elizabeth Kerikeri resignation, the mood of the electorate, or something else? Uh, I think all of the above, perhaps. And once again, to some extent, it will, could just be error variation, but also possibly people who would otherwise have said Green might have said, I don't know. Uh, they're just a little bit disgruntled at the moment. And that green support may or may not come back. Um, but again, 7% would be a bit disappointing, I guess, for green supporters. But on the other hand, it's not entirely out of keeping with where the polling has been trending. It's just a bit on the low side. Uh, well, it, it certainly is. It does, it does take them rather close to that 5% threshold yeah. because they were at one stage bouncing around the 9s, the 10s, the 11s. True, true. That's right. They have been uh, higher. And certainly, I mean, any political party would want to be higher. They've been as high as 12%, actually, uh, yeah. back in, in April with Roy Morgan. Uh, similarly, I think Te Pāti Māori would be a little bit disappointed with 24 because in some recent polls they've gone over 4%. Yeah, I mean, as a Greens voter, I've been a bit frustrated with all of this, especially because they just announced this enormous emissions reduction scheme, like one of the biggest ever that was such a good news story for a change in the climate space. And for then that to get this 4% drop, though, as you say, it's a 3% margin of error, and I don't usually get too fraught over individual polls indeed, but that has frustrated me in the face of some actual tangible action. And that's a really good point, although I think that that uh, announcement about that policy came a little bit late in the polling period. So uh. maybe those kinds of things. Once once the Green Party settles down and mm. stops um, infighting and really starts to focus on some uh, policy goals and achievements, maybe their polling will recover a bit. Yeah, because, like, ACT is hilarious and that, you know, there's so many of them now. And when they all were coming in, it was like, well, this is going to be interesting. There seem to be quite a few uh, views in here that will be spicy and the media will pick up and there'll be all kinds of stuff. 
crickets. You hear nothing from them. And mm. now it looks like they've got 15 seats off the latest poll. And the Greens, on the other hand, all you hear at the moment is stuff from internal that is not helping the the big thing move along. So, um, yeah, how have ACT managed to keep a little bit? Except ACT did, oh, sorry, they did put out some policies, including almost doubling the lowest tax rate, which I was genuinely flabbergasted about. But then you realise that that's never going to happen, and that's just them appealing to people who think that's a good idea, which I find kind of gross. I mean, mean, ACT has been one of the success stories, it's fair to say, um, Grant, in the last couple of years, two or three years, considering where they came from with the likes of, uh, who was the leader? Jamie White, you know, they'd, they'd be bouncing around the 1, 1.5%. Mm. Here they are at 11%. Absolutely, yes. In the last election, Act got 7.6%, and that was considered quite a considerable achievement at that time. Uh, they've been polling, you're right, so uh, around 11, 12. And so 11% for Act in this poll is pretty steady on the whole. Um, as I say, we can't read too much into plus or minus 1%. Uh, so, you know, they would probably be fairly satisfied with how uh, steady as she goes on 11. Um, and also looking at those uh, those other figures here, um, and actually the undecideds, uh, uh, Dr Duncan, 12%, fairly mm. sizable number there, and also 6 or 7% of people are voting for parties that may not or probably would not make it over the threshold. So there's quite a significant um, proportion of people there. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, with New Zealand First uh, polling at three, um, I wouldn't write them off yet because that's more or less about where they were in um, 2011, heading oh, okay. into the 2011 election, and then they got back in, remember? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they were polling under five right up until close to that election. So uh, don't write New Zealand First off at all. And, yes, the undecideds or the don't knows, well, part of the problem for pollsters is that we don't know what the turnout will be at the election. And I think one of the reasons for the um, inaccuracy in polls going ahead into the 2020 election is that they didn't pick the the boost in voter turnout, particularly amongst younger people uh, in 2020. So uh, I I would not like to guess whether um, turnout this election will be up or down. Uh, the fact that it's going to be a really close race would suggest that it would be up, but you know we have to wait and see. Um, so there's so many moving parts in, yes. these, in these polling uh, things. I, I always urge listeners not to take them too literally or too seriously, particularly this far out from an Yes, uh, you wrote yeah. a very interesting article about that a couple of months ago, yeah. I think, uh, Grant, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, all right, I Simon. Oh, I don't know if this is being a little bit too glass half full, but... Is it actually surprising considering that Labour um, have had, you know, such a difficult time with the pandemic and there's a cost of living crisis and inflation that, you know, globally we're actually doing okay, but everyone's feeling it here. And also there's like crime out of control, but the numbers actually say it's the same amount of crime somehow, but more reporting. Like, are they actually doing quite well considering all of this? There's a lot in there, isn't there? (laughs) Is it surprising how well they're doing? That's a really good point. I mean, uh, all things considered, National really ought to have Labour up against the ropes at the moment, you would think. And then the question is, well, why haven't they? Why are they more or less just uh, level pegging in the polls? Uh, you then go to the preferred Prime Minister polling, and of course, uh, uh, Chris Hitkins is uh, steadily ahead uh, of um, Christopher Luxon there. Neither of them doing really stellar in, in those polls, actually, but... Uh, yes, so there is a there is a paradox there for national. They sh- 
I, I would think that national strategists would be wondering why can't we do better? Do and think, normally, sorry, well, sorry, yeah. I was wondering if that's the act boost could be from the disgruntled national people. That's true. Yes, exactly. People disgruntled with national have act as an alternative, and you can see that possibly partly explains why act is doing yeah. quite well. Yeah. Um, but national really needs to focus on getting people to migrate from Labour to national, not from act to national, because if they're going to form a government. They're going to want to do it with that. Yeah. And so um, they're, they're, they're really, one of the interesting features, going by the polls at this stage anyway, one of the interesting features of the coming election could be that neither of the two leading parties gets into the 40s, which would be unusual. I'm not, ah. not unusual, but unusual for an MMP election. Very good, Dr. Duncan. Kia ora. Appreciate your time there. Sure, That's you. uh, Associate Professor Grant Duncan from Massey University. 17 past four, Penny Ashton, Simon Pound. It's the panel. Police say it was disturbing to see how two brothers used Christchurch bar Mama Hoosh to prey on victims. Danny Jazz was the manager of the bar where he and his brother Roberto spiked the drinks of their victims, mostly young women. Then they would commit rape, indecent assault and take videos while their victims were drugged, reports Neva Chidok of RNZ. Both lost names depression Thursday after being found guilty on a slew of crimes in the Christchurch District Court last month. Detective Inspector Scott Anderson said it's hard to believe there are predators like Danny and Roberto out there. With us is clinical psychologist Catherine McPhillips, also the executive director of Auckland Sexual Abuse Help Foundation at Auckland University. Catherine, kia ora. Kia ora. This was a years-long case I guess the first thoughts here are the extraordinary bravery of these young victims coming forward. Oh, absolutely. It takes a lot uh, to make those complaints to police and to stay in the process, you know, over all of this time, um, which is not that uncommon at the moment. There's been such delays with COVID, but yes, to stay in the process, you know, it's a significant portion of their lives that they have been dealing with this. Yeah, just reading um, uh, Detective Anderson's comments here, quoting hard to comprehend, thinking they are entitled to behave like this, and the word has been used, treat females like commodities. But the reality is, Captain, there are, um, it, it does happen, this is happening. I mean, were you sho- really shocked by this particular case? Um, I, I think that we were shocked that so many people ended up coming forward um, oh. to make complaints to police, but the nature of these kind of attacks we hear all the time, so we're hearing them every week. Um, so the behaviour itself is not uncommon. What might be uncommon is kind of establishing a way to do this so easily, you know, to, to actually um, own or manage a bar which gives you access in that way. So more often we hear mm. about predator offenders who are using dating apps or, you know, picking people up in bars or... You know, but but not actually necessarily getting into those kinds of positions to have such a field of people to target so easily. Yeah, it's just been so repellent. Like everything about this has just made me furious. Like particularly in those positions of power that they were so young. You know, it's been going for like six years or something. Five so years, yeah, 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 this is like a quarter of some of the you know a third of their lives yeah. or something like that, yeah. which is just outrageous. And you know, and I was reading that story about the ex-girlfriend that was talking about her the way she saw that their attitude towards women that it had been bred into them in the home and things like this, and just that thing that when you when you don't get taught to treat women with respect, and perhaps you don't see it from your father or something like. Like that this is how it comes out is that the sort of people I mean is it really difficult to say the sort of people that do this sort of offending but is it that sort of background 
Um, I, I don't think it's that clear cut anymore. Um, yeah. And certainly what we're seeing is a lot of influence from pornography. So I think it's nearly 90% of pornography shows the degradation of women. So actually, you know, lots of people in our society are consuming this all the time. And, uh, you know, when young people see that kind of pornography, that really influences their beliefs about what they're entitled to or, you know, what they need to put up with. Um, and so do you think so, the women think that this is something that they should expect? Well, yes, we, we meet lots of women who Oof. believe that that is, um, you know, what they can expect. Uh, oh, that's not necessarily the being drugged, um, but certainly, um, you know, yeah, Force. sex without consent, rape, yeah. Oof. Gosh, Simon. Yeah, I mean, one thing that seems to stand out here as well is, and this is something, you know, really interested to hear how common this is, is that the time it took from the first reports to things actually happening, you know, there were nearly a year of ongoing offending. And, you know, what's the saying about how fast police need to act to protect women experiencing this or who could experience this? Catherine? Yes, look, I, I don't know the details in this particular case, but certainly we're aware that police often have uh, sex crimes unallocated in a wait list, if you like. Um, I certainly know of other cases where it's taken a year for the police to talk to the offender or Oof. the alleged offender at that point. Um, so, yes, the process is taking a long time. You know, our police are under-resourced to be actually up to the task of holding people accountable. One of the things that we know about accountability and, and it's, it being effective is that the closer it happens to the event, the more effective it's going to be. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that right, we all yes. need to, to be as fast as we can in holding people to account. I mean, that's quite a key point, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the mother of one victim was quoted in the post, quoting, this has been a heartbreaking process for us, many sleepless nights, watching our daughter and her friends suffer through the range of pain and blame when none of it was a consequence of anything they had done, Ron. The court process must simply be gruelling, uh, Catherine, for these young women to go through. Yes, I mean, we're always trying to get that changed. The Law Commission did some really good work some years ago, you know, really looking at that for sex crimes, we need a different kind of process because what it ends up being usually is a really grilling of the victim, whether they're male or female, but a grilling of the victim about what they did or didn't do um, rather than the person who's actually on trial. Yeah. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, but, you know, the Law Commission came up with ideas about, you know, instead moving to judge-led questioning, for example, yeah. rather than defence lawyer questioning, um, so that, you know, judges can actually be trained up to treat people with respect. And, you know, there's a whole lot of differences that we could make to this. Has that I happened? would make a difference. No, no, no it right. hasn't happened. I know, it's so down. often that you, people, the women blame themselves. That's the thing. They think it's their shame, and then they take that in and internalise that. And for it to go on yep. for so long with that sitting in there, I was reading one woman saying that she was so happy that they're names have come out and she found that really liberating for the shame that she was holding inside you know Absolutely. and to see that is like oh that makes Gosh. me cry like, yeah I you know we don't really understand why but it's almost a universal response to this is to blame yourself first and I think some of that's about control because you go you know well if I only hadn't gone there it never would have happened yeah. and I think that's about going oh okay I can make this not happen to me in the future. But the downside of that is that self-blame. And I think that eases a bit sometimes in cases like this where there's so many victims, you yeah. know, and they know that there's other people who have come forward. But it's it's a real it's a real struggle. And 
most people when there's a court case like this in front of them, you know, they are frightened of being in that room with that person again. You know, they know that it will raise their anxiety and so it's very hard to kind of progress and heal. It's almost like people just hold their breath till that trial's over. And so when it takes this long, you know, it really does mm. impact their whole lives. Catherine, wonderful to have you on the programme. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your service. Thanks very much. That is clinical psychologist Catherine McPhillips, uh, Executive Director of Auckland Sexual Abuse Help Foundation at Auckland University. Now, just um, a reminder here, where to get our rape crisis uh, on 0800 883300, victim support 0800 842 846, uh, or Safe Talk, you can text 4334 there, and Women's Refuge 0800 733 843, and those are, of course, online, uh, those details there. Don't Just, blame yourselves. Don't yeah. blame yourselves. Uh, 25 past four, the panel on RNZ National, Penny Ashton, Simon Pounder, and just a little word on this. I wanted to get the panel's take. Uh, this from the New Zealand Herald. Thousands of people took part in climate strikes today, organised by schools strike for climate. Meanwhile, the CEO of the Ministry for the Environment, James Palmer, has come into fire for flying to Wellington once a week while the ministry advises Kiwis to reduce the number of flights they're taking to reduce emissions. So he travels between Hawke's Bay and Wellington about once a week at his personal expense, sometimes by EV. Around the panel here. Uh, it just feels silly. Like, it's like, what? You know, like, because a so lot of... So he shouldn't fly. Oh, I don't... You know, again, I, I tour around the country. I vote green. I'm all for all this stuff, but it's Hypocrite. like... Yeah, screw you. But it's like if there's a, if there was an alternative that I could afford, and this is the thing, this is why we need to put money into R and D to get things that we can all afford to do that can still keep going with our lives. Plan ahead, bus, train. I can't do that when I'm t- taking my props and costumes all around the country. You know, so I mean, I have sympathy for this is situation. Is it not overhead? Is it not what? Overhead. Oh my god! I have co- I have tables and chairs and hat stands. Oh, okay, and fair enough. Baskets and barrels and things. So it would cost a Simon. lot. Yeah, this is the kind of typical gotcha stuff that sets true change back. Like, you know, saying that this person who's offsetting their uh, work with native forest credits, they're doing the best thing they can. They're working to try and change the system. And it's kind of this typical gotcha stuff that the media love. And it seems to say, well, oh, he's a hypocrite. He 350 hours into a climate campaign, Adam Curry said that uh, MFE is not doing what's needed to cut climate pollution. Yeah, but if this person is working towards changing, changing the that. system, he's new. picking them out because they fly on a plane, it's like, you know, people go, oh, Greta Thunberg, she can't have a point because she, oh, she's she's drunk a coffee right. before. You know, you're like, get out of it. It's yeah. nonsense. 27 pounds. I think it's so true. It's the gotcha sort of thing. I'm yeah. dying to get to this. Sorry, the Pristine <laughs> Lada neither <laughs> for sale for nearly half a Bring million. Bring on the cars. <laughs> the and really, the way, really, really bad cars. If you want a great series, Drive to Survive, Formula One. It's unbelievable. You should check it out tonight. Probably won't. So, which had me music on our first family car, the Green Falcon 500. So what about a shout-out to the first car you owned? And goodness me, they came. You delivered Aotearoa. <laughs> the 1936 Chev, built like a tank, gas 36 cents a gallon. First car, a 1947 Ford V8 Coupe. Ex-traffic cops issue. I paid £125 for it. Another one here. Red 1972 Mini. The same year as me. Purchased at 16 for $500. And they just keep on going. There are hundreds. Anyway, with us now is Shona. Shona's from Fielding. Kia ora, Shona. 
Hello, how are you? I'm just absolutely dandy. <laughs> More like it, how are you? Tell us about your first car, Shona. <laughs> well, my first car was a mint condition, one little old lady owner, mm. Lada Sedan. No, you had the Lada. <laughs> Robust, heavy. Oh, it was it was awesome to drive. I loved it. It went everywhere. It went down onto the beach. It went oh. onto riverbeds. Oh it gosh, went okay. Country. You wouldn't do that um, anymore. Gravel roads. No, I know. It was rear wheel drive. It was really good, easy control. Oh, just you sound really like, awesome. You sound like you miss it there, Sean. Why'd you give it up? <laughs> oh, because it wasn't that comfortable to drive with the air conditioning <laughs> and the suspension. It was like Russian air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shine up. Thanks for the memories. We're going to go to the next one because we've had so many. And with us now, we have Jan on Ototahi Christchurch. Jan, welcome. Oh, Tiora Wallace. Yeah, now what was your first ever car? Well, it was a black VW. We called it the Black Beetle. Yeah. And we were living in Alexandra back in the early 60s. And I'm in my 80s now, and it's the best car I've ever, ever had. Very <laughs> stylish. We moved. <laughs> we moved to Christchurch and... Um, we had one daughter by then and then another daughter and by then we couldn't sit a baby in the back. The way we used to have children in those days was in a carrying cot. So the, the two sisters were rather alarmed that we might have to sell the, be- the black beetle. They said they would really prefer the car to the baby, but uh, eventually <laughs> <laughs> it all came right. <laughs> we were we had to do a fair bit of bribing, but everything came right. Those were the <laughs> days, Penny. But in the early days in central Otago, it was a wonderful car oh, because it could get everywhere. Yep, what up mountains, through oh. snow, everywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. What, are you listen to a pioneer, Penny Ashton? Oh, no, that sounds amazing. I remember my mum's, I think it was a Hillman Hunter, yeah. and, and it had a choke, and that was a thing. You know, and the choke got flooded, and you couldn't start the, <laughs> the car. The choke. Yeah, the choke. Did your car have a choke? I think it did, yes. Mm. I, mm. I think this is me, Jan. Yep. Yes, yes. Was, sorry. Yes. And I think I had, did I have to double the clutch in it? Is that right? That it was, was like, a yeah. very alarming performance, actually. Yeah. Someone will know, Jan, <laughs> it's a VW62, it's black. Uh, did Jan have to double the clutch, Simon? <laughs> Yeah, love it. We had um, at my our first car that I remember was uh, an old Triumph, beautiful car with all of the dials and everything. And then we had a succession of Skodas that Dad liked them for some kind of Czechoslovakian kind of solidarity thing or something. And <laughs> they they were like the larders, and that you got all the jokes about you know how do you double the value of a Skoda? You fill the tank. You know why does it have um, a, you know heater on the back window? Ought to warm your hands up when you got to push it up the hill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jan, lovely. You've made well, my day. You. Yeah, thank you very much. There you go. This thank is, you. There's uh, a couple of many. I was a bit sad. My first car was a Mitsubishi Mirage, and I was very fortunate. I was one of those. I got one when I was at school. Mm. Um, I got my license when I was 15 in one day, and I'm glad you can't do that anymore. Uh, but anyway, and then at the end of sixth form, I had my epileptic seizure, my first one, and so we had to sell the car, and that was us. Excuse mm. me. It was mm. like to have that freedom and that, 
and then just taken away and because of this completely out of nowhere medical event was pretty crappy. So I just want to send out to all the epileptics nice. listening who know what that's like. Very good. Just tuned in, hopefully not too late. I just let go of my first car today on the back of a trailer to the tip. A beautiful <laughs> blue 98 Nissan Wing Road that Guts had completely seized. I own it from 16. If you could give her a shout out, that'll be great. She would miss. I love the show, Aww. says Ruben. Um, I have a I Nissan s- Note that I love, so I get the Nissan love. I'm, I'm astonished at your memories coming through. They've really made my day. Thank you. You're on the panel, RNZ National. Time for headlines. Thank you, Jesse. Oh, sorry, not Jesse, sorry. What? No worries, my <laughs> <minute. laughs> Who am I? Who are you? That's all right, Evie Ashton. Off you what? go. <laughs> sorry. Okay. <laughs> You go for it. Oh, I was going to I think yeah. I was all mixed up because I was going to share a story. So was, Go on, gonna, you've, got, you've got 10 seconds. <laughs> I did 10 because I was naughty. Um, so my first, it wasn't a car, but it was a little motorbike. My dad helped buy for me when I was a student in Christchurch. And it wasn't um, a proper motorbike. It had like um, little 50, 50. pedals. Pedals. Oh, right. Moped. Pedals. Nice. And we'd just go along, uh, me and my friend, I'd put her on the back as well, uh, Colombo Street on Friday night with uh, boy racers, and they were just um, crack up laughing when they looked down and see me pedaling beside them when the lights turned green. <laughs> there we go. There goes Marama. She's got a future. So, yeah. Good on you. <laughs> Oh dear, here we go. Okay, here's our headlines. Um, Wallace. (laughs) 